Hey everybody, you're listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. My name is Andreas Steno and I uh, want to welcome you to the Macro Trading Floor. It's been another interesting week in, uh, in macro markets uh, and we have a very interesting meeting in the Federal Reserve upcoming a couple of hours after we record this. It is today the 2nd of November, Wednesday the 2nd of November, uh, and Paul will take uh, center stage in a couple of hours from now. Um, Alfonso, it's obviously <laughs> almost destined to go wrong to try and, f and forecast Powell's uh, actions, and then we will release this after his, his um, press conference. But anyway, what's your take on the current stance of the Fed? Is it something that's sort of up for debate? Uh, well, I'll, I'll play it safe, Andreas. 75 basis point, but everybody knows that. <laughs> it's very simple. Um, Happy to make a fool of myself if I'm wrong. Um, the most important thing is actually what Powell will announce when it comes to whatever is left of forward guidance. Everybody seems to be uh, praying or willing to call for a pivot. And a pivot here is nothing else than the Federal Reserve announcing a rate of change of federal funds rates uh, that is more dovish than forwards are pricing in. Today's forwards are pricing the terminal rate of roughly 5% anywhere in the first quarter, April next year. And then effectively this 5% to be kept there for six to nine months with some residual chance of cuts being priced in 2024. That's what the market is pricing. If Powell would message uh, to the world that the hurdle for the Federal Reserve to be more accommodative than this forward path of rates being priced in is actually low, then you would have a rally. If you would have Powell instead being very firm and uh, mark down the jolts openings data that we saw being very aggressively high or you know, a strong labor market, et cetera, then you would have probably the market uh, having to reprice uh, a faster pace of hikes ahead or at least a tighter monetary policy stance ahead. I think that distinction, Andreas, is much more important than the 75 basis point hike itself. And the other point is obviously uh, discussions about monetary plumbing at this stage. I think both the liquidity in the treasury market and uh, this buyback store is gaining more traction. And today we got the, the details of the quarterly refunding announcement in the US, which effectively came back as dispelling the idea of a buyback being done anywhere earlier than the next three to six months. Now we can discuss why that is important, but I first wanna get your take on the Fed. Well, I, I mean, I've, I've been, pretty wrong on the Fed over the past couple of months. Um, I, I admit to that. Uh, the reason being that I think that every single forward-looking indicator I look at um, is so dark right now that it makes sense for them to sort of take a step back and at least try to cater this pivot audience. Uh, but in any case, if you look at lacking to so-called so coincidal indicators, so stuff that we know today and not stuff that we predict, then there is absolutely no whatsoever reason for them to pivot. The labor market is smoking hot. Um, there, is, uh, there are signs of, of emerging, um, even more emerging um, wage growth pressures into Q4 as a consequence of the um, openings data that we've seen in Q3. Um, in terms of the mandate, um, they won't get any help on spot inflation during the fourth quarter either really, since we still have uh, too high energy prices. Um, we'll get back to that in a second. So from that perspective, I mean, if, if, if you put me on the board later today, I would vote for 75 basis points as well, even though some forward-looking indicators look really grim. 
but it doesn't really matter. The incentive structure is different. You're right, Andreas. So although the Federal Reserve should drive the car looking forward, because of their Monday, they're driving the car looking in the rearview mirror. That's effectively what's been going on. But whatever we, wherever we like it or not, it doesn't really matter. We need to... But, but that, 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 let me add one thing, um, because uh, one of the key components behind the sudden reacceleration of core inflation in the U.S. has been the rent-of-shelter component, so housing costs, right? Uh, and, I mean, we are standing at a crossroads right now when it comes to that particular subcomponent of the CPI index, simply due to the fact that if you look at market-based gauges of rental growth, such as Silov um, or apartment list, then there is still a, a massive gap seen over the past 24 months between the rent reflected in the CPI and the rent reflected in, in these market-based gauges. Um, so over time, and we have in between seven and eight years of history uh, on the silo component versus the CPI component, uh, they tend to converge. Uh, so in this case, there is a potential 20% nominal catch-up in the CPI index still left in the rental shelter component. Um, it obviously, uh, it, the, the jury is still out on, on whether that will happen. I'm just saying that there, there is a potential upside in core inflation from that component, um, even though some of the other forward-looking indicators look rather grim, uh, or at least they, they, they point to the south for, for inflation. It's right? a very good point to notice there will be a likely core goods deflation straight away from used cars to other core goods. One might argue that because of supply bottlenecks reopening and other reasons, um, core goods will actually decline in prices, straight away outright decline in prices. But because services inflation, especially shelter, is basically a backward-looking catch-up measure at this stage, there is a chance this will continue marching higher, and the Federal Reserve is obsessed about core services inflation, which is by definition a lagging indicator. But again, that's their incentive scheme, as you said, and we need to respect that when looking at markets. Now, we talked about rates and inflation. Liquidity is an important uh, thing to, to uh, track as well. And there, today, there's been quite an important announcement, which is a non-announcement, Andreas. Basically, the so-called whispered buyback program from the Treasury has not been announced, and even hints have been given that just uh, some initial um, uh, you know, coverage with dealers has been done, which normally puts the timeline of such an announcement not anywhere near than three to six months from now which means the prevailing uh, monetary plumbing dynamics over the next three to six months are actually going to be um, others and negative for risk assets, if you ask me, because we're going to have the Treasury General account raised by $100 billion. That's the target from the government, which drains basically reserves from the system and liquidity from the system. We are going to have the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve shrink by $95 billion a month. So that's Chatteris paribus, a net drain of liquidity and reserves from the system as well. And there is an additional chance, if you ask me, that given money market funds and treasuries offer a 4% return against bank deposits offering nearly a 0% return, you might want to have some flows going towards those uh, rather than keep being kept in the banking system, which is a further drain of reserves from the banking system. So if I sum them all up, it looks to me that the net supply of bonds of collateral being thrown at the private sector will remain relatively high over the next three to six months, while the amount of reserves from the system will be drained, not only by QT, but also by accessory factors like the TGA and this potential shift of money from the banking sector to the reverse repo facility even further. 
And that, Andreas, I think is relevant for the next three to six months, and it doesn't depict a very healthy picture in general for risk assets. No, and net-net, obviously a bad signal for equities, right? Um, One thing I wanted to add to the discussion um, is what's uh, boiling in diesel space, so to speak, uh, because... I think two or three months back, we the two of us started talking about the natural gas market. We, by the way, had it spot on that um, the price sort of um, exaggerated to an extent that wasn't really um, fundamentally fair. Um, and I think something similar is happening, happening in diesel right now. Um, if you look at calendar spreads um, on the northeast coast of the U.S., we have a massive positive spread between December and November, um, meaning that the market is betting on a supply scarcity into the winter of diesel. Um, There are a lot of reasons why the northeastern part of the U.S. is is hit the worst. Um, It's mostly politically driven. They have no refineries. Uh, The Jones Act in the U.S. um, basically restricts non-U.S. ships from sailing refined products from the Gulf to the northeastern part of of the U.S. Uh, You cannot make this shit up, but that's actually true. Um, And uh, I mean... Therefore, the, the northeastern past is, is, is worth off. But when it comes to the dynamics, I, I tend to think that there are similar dynamics at play here. Um, uh, and it feels kind of reminiscent to what happened in, in natural gas space in early, um, in early August and into September. Um, the reason being that if you look at speculative positioning in heating oil, so basically the facts are the same as diesel, we've seen quite a pickup in open interest um, uh, towards playing the long side of this bet. Uh, so I guess a lot of assholes have started uh, involving themselves in this bet. We saw the same I- issue in natural gas when shit hit the, f- uh, hit the fan back in, uh, in, in the late summer. Um, so I, I sense that pattern unfolding again in diesel here. And the second thing being that the reason why we've moved consumption towards diesel and heating oil was that we saw this price increase in natural gas three months ago. That price is now substantially lower so at some point with the time lag i think we will see a repricing um, mechanism that leads consumption back to natural gas leading diesel lower again but goes without saying this is something that filters directly through to cpi um it is a price at the pump as well, the diesel price, yeah. right? Uh, so this is um, a tricky thing for the Fed to, to solve. So many things that are going on in commodity space. It's so interesting. And uh, there was a, a rumor being spread on social media uh, one or two days ago that China would consider uh, reopening its economy in Q1 next year, around March, while the market went ballistic on commodities, on Hong Kong stocks, on Chinese stocks, on the one, anything actually rallied you know, on a big reopening uh, trade. Uh, those rumors were denied today uh, by by the Chinese Communist Party officials. But Andreas, it would be really interesting to see what the China reopening would do to the economy. And I would say, of course, like there is a lot of pent up, not a lot, but a decent amount of pent up stimulus that the Chinese Communist Party has tried to throw uh, throw the Chinese economy, which is not flowing through the real economy because everybody is stuck home basically because of of road lockdown. So if you reopen, you would only not have uh, you would not only have a nominal growth boost coming from a normal reopening process, but also pent up demand on top of that because of some stimulus being thrown at the economy in the meantime. And at the beginning, you, ca- you have to expect that this means um, nominal growth boost and a boost to commodity demand. If you reopen industrial production in China, you also get back copper demand and you get back all of that demand that has been repriced down all the way through until now. I, wa- I mean, this is positive risk assets because you get online an engine of growth that has been basically almost completely offline for a while. 
but it does complicate the job of central banks because you will get another commodity rally. I mean, this would be a really interesting dynamic to see. Um, what's your quick take there? Well, if you look at relative positioning between energy and copper in commodity space, uh, we are currently at extremes. So the market is super long energy, but it's super short industrial metals. And I think that's driven by the China mm -hmm. story. Um, and therefore, this China reopening play, if you're willing to bet on it, um, should probably be taken in industrial metals. Uh, I think that's the safest bet. Uh, but um, it could also be a dark horse for equities, needless to say that. Uh, and we've actually found an equity bull for the macro trading floor again this week. They're not easy to find right now, but uh, should, shall we bring him on Definitely. the floor? It's now our great pleasure to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. And this week, it is actually my current boss. <laughs> is that fair to say? Um, the founder of the Real Vision platform, but also the founder of Global Macro Investors, the GMI report. Uh, it's great to see you, Raul. Thank you for joining it's us. It's to be here, guys. Looking forward to this. Hey, we get to interview Raul today. So let's start from uh, the broadest question of all, Raul, because you are known to be a very broad macro thinker. So why don't you give us a bit of an overview of where do you think we are in the macro cycle? This is difficult considering I've just written 280 pages over two months on this. I'm going to give you a top-down level. There are two big... I'm just trying to take notes so I, rem I remember how to approach this. There's two big things, I think, is when we step back, people hear me talk a lot about debt, demographics, all of these things, but what it is, and I kind of distilled my thinking down, is what is GDP? GDP, essentially, GDP growth over time, not you know quarter by quarter, is driven by demographics, i.e. population growth, plus productivity. That's the kind of magic formula. Once you understand that, you can build a framework around it. And the framework of understanding is, as I've been talking about, demographics is a net draw. And I know there's some arguments out there from others that maybe the capital gets released by the baby boomers and it could be inflationary. There's no evidence of that anywhere in the world yet. So, you know, that's a risk to the view and that's fine. So demographics is a real problem for the Western world plus China, plus Southeast Asia. Aging populations mean GDP growth goes down. What we've seen is because of globalization technology um, and too many people in the workforce at the same age, the baby boomers, They've competed for wages, and real wage growth has been flat for 40 years. So i.e. the average American has had zero increase in wages. And the second drive, that's why that's occurring, is obviously the competition at, at wage level, i.e. 76 million boomers competing with each other and now competing with their kids. They're both in the labor force at the same time. Competing with AI, robots, the internet, and everything else competing with Chinese workers and Indian workers. I mean, that's a pretty difficult environment for everybody. Nobody really wants to increase immigration. So, Alf, you're in Italy. Italy had a huge immigration, and everybody wants to slow it down because it's hard to digest at a societal level. The UK had the same. Germany's had the same. Denmark's had the same. Sweden's had the same. Everyone's had the same. So, population immigration, not that these populations are particularly against immigration, but there's a limit to the number of people you can accept at any one time without society breaking because what happens is there's too much competition for jobs again. So you, you lower the real wages of the population. So then let's focus on 
um, productivity. Productivity has been falling for about 40 years as well, which is kind of weird because we've had a lot of technology, but productivity keeps falling. So GDP growth has been falling over time. And what has happened is everybody's taken on debt to offset it, whether it's governments or whether it's individuals or corporations. So everyone's been taking on debt, which offsets the decline in GDP. Problem is, is each dollar of debt is less, driving less GDP each time. So it takes, I think, one dollar of debt to drive three units, uh, one, one, three dollars of debt to drive one unit of GDP right now. So it's been falling over time. So how the fuck do you solve a problem like this? It's a real issue. Now, the issue is the debt part of the burden is something that is potentially solvable. So how do you reduce that debt burden to free up capital and you know velocity and all of the things that you kind of need to get the economy driving? And, and to free that up, you're going to have to either pay back the debt, which is never going to happen. You have to inflate it away with headline inflation, which, would, which is happening now, which is too societally painful. So the central bank quashes it immediately. Or three, you have to run negative real rates for extended periods of time, much like the 1950s. So, and the other side of that equation is to prop up economic growth. Economic growth really is what pays the interest and the debt. So if you think of that equation, that all of GDP is the income that pays off the debt. So GDP has to be growing. It has to be growing over the level of debt growth. If not, you go bust at societal level. And th those are the issues we've seen in Europe as well. Some of the countries where economies are growing really slow and debt's been growing faster. Italy's a great example. Um, it becomes unmanageable. So that kind of issue is why we get fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus always. So there is an endless need for the cowbell. The cowbell of stimulus has to come because it doesn't function without it, because we don't have population growth and we don't have productivity growth. So if you're looking at the really big picture here, the cowbell comes every time GDP growth goes down for an extended period of time. Nobody can allow asset prices to fall for an extended period of time because they are the collateral of the system. So at any one stage, we can see, we're already hearing it in the US, right? The treasury buybacks, right? That's that's actually some form of net stimulus. It's not quantitative easing, but what it's going to do is probably push money out of the reverse repo markets, back into the bond markets. That's a net liquidity push. That will filter through into the economy. We're seeing the, the fiscal stimulus both in Europe and the US. We've seen it in Japan as well, which is transfer payments, which is something I've talked about for a long time, is something that people are experimenting with as a new way. But then... If I look at the trend rate of five-year break-evens over the last 25, 30 years, they just keep going more and more negative on a slow path. So trend rate, if you just use the regression on Bloomberg of five-year break-evens, trend rate of, um, of, um, of real rates is negative five. So, I'm oh, sorry, negative one, sorry. So negative one percent. So every time you go positive, positive real rates doesn't function in a debted economy for long. So the economy slows down. So that's what we're seeing right now, right? That's what we're all observing is the real rates go up, the economy goes down, inflation goes down with it. So the only solution here is you run negative real rates for long enough and then try and do what you did in the 1950s, which was have technology close the gap. 
So technology closes the gap in two ways at a big picture macro level. One is robots are demographics. So if you look at the Amazon warehouses, Amazon now has one and a half million employees and 500,000 robot employees. The robot employees work 365 days a year, take no holidays, never have a day off. Um, so they're much more productive as a workforce and they're cheaper. So that trend is going to continue. So first it balances out. So the amount of robots that Walmart and Amazon put into the workforce in the last two years offsets the number of retirees. You know, it's of that scale. So you're offsetting population. OK, so that helps. Doesn't help for jobs over time, right? That becomes a problem. And we'll come on to that. But the other thing that's happening is productivity. And this is my thesis of the exponential age, is we're about to go through a period of exponential change, the fast adoption of technology of all human history, which is AI, robotics, space, EV, Internet of Things, distributed computing, genetic sciences, longevity sciences, all of these things are all happening at the same time and all linked to each other, blockchain technology. It gives us a potential to generate productivity growth. So that's at a big picture level. So we need 10, 15 years for the technology to start driving productivity, for the baby boomers to die off partially, and for um, us to run negative real rates so the debt burden's okay. That's what I think the big picture is. Where inflation remains within that picture, does it go back down to lows? Does it get sticky? At a big picture level, it doesn't really matter, you know, because it certainly won't remain high because the economy can't take it. It's a net tightening of financial conditions in itself. So that's what I think is, is going on at big picture level. And then to shrink down to where we are today, well, we've got the tightest real rates you can imagine, considering the amount of debt burden, you know, if you adjust it for debt. You've got, you know, net tightening of financial conditions caused by commodity prices, the dollar, everything else. So the probability and the forward-looking forecasts are that GDP growth will fall significantly and inflation falls significantly. Where does inflation end up? None of us know yet, and we could debate that all day. We just don't know, but the probability is that inflation falls. So then let's go down to the issue that's at hand, which is today's story because of the Fed. What are the Fed about to do? Now, the Fed know that the economic growth data is falling apart going forwards. Everybody knows it. The question is, is how do they stop inflation expectations rebounding when markets rebound? Because they will. The moment they pivot, markets will rebound. That's OK, but they can't drive expectations of inflation driving because inflation is not the stock market. But it's all partly tied in. The oil market's obviously a big equation in this. My guess is the Fed will start to slow down the rate, the rate of change of increases. And all that matters in financial markets is rate of change. The markets pick this up. I think the crypto market picks it up first. Um, long end of technology and a few other things have started to pick it up as well. So the rate of change changes. Um, and then the next part is something to do with either changing the regulations, forcing the banks into the reverse repo via Basel III. And Yellen's already talked about they're talking to the regulators to see what they can change. If not, it's the Treasury buybacks or increasing some liquidity into the Treasury market, which has become much less liquid than it than it usually was and is creating a problem. Then after that is, I think, the Fed pivot once inflation falls below Fed funds. Now, where's terminal Fed funds? I don't know. I'm guessing 
somewhere between four and four and a half. So when does inflation get below that? Every forward-looking indicator I've got from inflation looks like it falls through Fed funds by about March, April. So that's the sequencing of events. I think we're at the turning point. If I look at the forward-looking indicators that I use, like my um, uh, financial conditions index and a whole bunch of other stuff, Chinese credit conditions, they're all sig signifying that the bottom of the cycle is probably in Q1. So, okay, so the bottom of the cycle, we've got the worst part to come still. We've got the ISM to get from here down to 40. But the bottom of the cycle comes in Q1 and the markets are start to forward-look. So that's kind of where I think we are. I think we're at the turning point and a significant turning point. And I'm not talking about today or tomorrow. I'm talking about the next four weeks to the next six weeks. So reasonably short-term time horizon. So it's coming down. I've got a lot of technical signals that say the same thing, whether it's tops in the dollar, and that would be probably a temporary top, um, you know, the, the, the potential lows in the equity market, potential um, um, highs in the, in the bond in bonds yields, and we had some a lot of signals and lows in the crypto market. So that's it in one go. <laughs> Achtung, Achtung, we've got another equity bull on the macro trading. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen too often these days, to be honest, Raul. Uh, but before we get back to this discussion on the timing of the so-called pivot, I, by the way, hate that word by now. We've been talking about a pivot all year, right? Um, I wanted to play the devil's advocate on, uh, on your productivity thesis. Um, at least you can make the argument that when money uh, literally carries no time value, when interest rates are zero, we tend to see uh, sort of an environment of extremely low productivity growth. Um, pseudo products certainly seem compelling as there is basically no true uh, economic value add in projects leading to efficiency gains quicker than others um, due to the lack of, of a discount yield basically. And bad ideas could thrive in such a, uh, an environment. What do you make of that discussion of the zero interest rate environment and the spillovers to creative destruction, so basically? what we don't know is what is the correlation and what is the causation here. I think the actual causation is debt. So the productivity growth goes down because of debt and not because of low interest rates. I actually think if you're funding future technologies, the argument is that you'll probably have a higher probability of funding a productivity growth. The other thing that I take real issue with is this argument that goes around from the general fear of change crowd, which is that, um, well, with interest rates at 4%, all of these technology companies, um, they're, they're valueless and the cost of capital is too high. I, I don't know if anybody's checked, but half of these companies are growing at 100% a year, 200% a year. There is not a single world within which a 4% cost of capital matters. Now, it's the rate of change of capital costs that matters, which is what changes the price. So the price can go down. Are you changing the growth trajectory or not? This is the question. And my argument is we're at the magic intersection where we have an exponential secular trend and a business cycle trend. And the business cycle has brought the asset prices down to the exponential trend or the bottom of the exponential trend. You don't get these kind of things more than once or twice in a generation, let alone a lifetime. And that's where I think we are. And that's not, you know, this week or next week. This is, I'm talking about, you know, this is kind of next six months or less. I think we're at points that you would never get the access to. The, so the mega trends I've got are this exponential age technologies, crypto, which is actually part of it, and India is probably the other one. India is the only one that doesn't ever give you the chance to get to that bottom of the regression channel. It's just 
because it's a young population, 28 years old, 1.4 billion people all being financialized, it's like the 401k system in the uh, mid-90s. It's just the stock market just doesn't correct. And so India's really impossible to get that cheap point, but technology and crypto hit exactly those inflection points. And I don't think a cost of capital of 4% makes any difference whatsoever. It's the rate of change of capital going from 25 basis points to 4% that mattered. So, Raul, let's talk about the rate of change of the Federal Reserve monetary policy stunts. Because you said before something which I think is interesting. The pivot, really, uh, in people's imagination, is the Federal Reserve cutting rates to 2% or 1% anytime soon. But in reality, it's important already if the Federal Reserve decides to either, together with the Treasury, inject net liquidity into the system instead of withdrawing it at a very fast pace. The buybacks could be one way to do that. We can discuss about that a bit further if you wish. The other way would be effectively to beat the, the forward interest rate curve that is already pricing a stabilization of rates around 5% terminal next year. It's already for the Fed to signal that 4.5% is going to be the prevailing rate and or the direction of travel is on the way down rather than cutting rates to 1% straight away. The question, I, and I agree on this stance, the question I have there, uh, Raul, is we are used to see central bankers being able to change their stance or their rate of change of policy dovishly pretty rapidly over the last 10 years because inflation expectations were very low. But is that not a, an antithetical thing to do today when you're trying to slow demand to change your stance too quickly and therefore feed inflation expectation higher, which then come and haunt you later on? Basically, the Volcker mistake at some point in the 70s. Yeah, and I think the market's obsessed by this topic. And look, I, I don't think it's invalid and it's something I would take seriously in consideration. So one thing, let's talk about the buybacks quickly. What is clever about the buyback strategy or some change in the Basel III that allows money to get out of the reverse repo because it's trillions are trapped there is you can keep raising rates, but you're actually adding some liquidity back into the system. It's a bit of an optical trick, right? But it actually works. So that's interesting. So the Fed can keep credibility while the Treasury are bailing out the economy. Okay, same with the fiscal side. That's what we're seeing in Europe. It's not so easy on the fiscal side. If you go too big, you punish your currency. So, okay, there's a bit of that. Um, I think the Fed actually cut rates, as we said, when CPI falls below Fed funds. Because then they can turn around and say, see, I've done it. You know, because there's a lot of seven, 1970s Volcker fans who say, well... You don't defeat inflation unless Fed funds is above the inflation rate. So I think they'll probably do that. And then Powell can have his book written about him, how he beat COVID and then beat inflation. And isn't he amazing? Right. Inflation was actually probably beaten by the economy itself. But, you know, and the, and the two year rate that did enough damage for everybody. Um, but that's how I think about it. The wild card for the inflation expectation story is not actually the expectation because expectations are made pretty anchored. It's actually this dynamic that Andreas has talked about a reasonable amount as well. And we're all observing, which is, you know, the oil market is tight. Some of the commodity markets are tight. If you bring back growth too fast, then does that create sticky inflation? I go back and look at the 1940s and early 50s, that period from 1946 to, let's say, 1952, where we had identical situation. Everybody come back into the labor force. The factories had to retool and come back to work. Inflation exploded, obviously. It was at 
it went down to negative two or whatever it was. Mathematical rate of change and a slowdown in the economy can do that. And I, I kind of expect inflation to go negative this time around as well. But then the rebound effects, because you still haven't cleared through all of the structural issues, inflation went back up to about 6% and then eventually settles down after another recession or tightening cycle. That tightening cycle back then was yield curve control as well. So they didn't allow it to go as bad because they realised the damage they would do to the economy. So I kind of feel like we, we, we're, we're potentially into a similar situation. Um, I think Europe is massively accelerating the move away from fossil fuels um, in a way that we don't yet comprehend because there's going to be enormous capital allocation. But that's not a two-year process, you know, at best five, seven years before the rate of change really picks up. So we've got this period to negotiate. And sure, can Southern Europe um, use Algeria for natural gas more than it is? I know that Spain is and Italy is, but can that provide pipelines through Europe? Hopefully, because then you've got somebody who is within your sphere. Can you put wages and factories in Morocco? That's already happening. Half the French car industry is moving to Morocco. So I think the solutions are there, but this is the zone where it's difficult. Now, what does that mean for interest rates? Will they go back up to whatever the peak is for this cycle next time around? No, because I don't think inflation will either. So if inflation peaked at whatever it did, 9%, what does it peak at next up cycle? 5%, let's say. And where do... Fed funds get to that time, or yields, yields probably are lower because they kind of know the dynamic at this stage. So I think the 70s parallel is wrong. I think they will still try and follow it. And that's obviously what's leading to the potential recession that looks like it's on the cards. The rebound effect is going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, obviously, there's another massive wild card in here, which is if China invades Taiwan then we've got really big supply chain problems. But I don't think, game theory-wise, I think it's nobody's interest to do this yet because China cannot afford to be knocked out of the dollar system. They can't be, afford to be without supply chains or supplying those chains, and nor can the US. So they, they're probably better to just keep shouting at each other a bit and just slowly pulling apart. Um, that would be my probability, but geopolitics is the hardest thing ever to predict. <laughs> Absolutely right, Raul. Uh, let's talk a bit about consensus because uh, I think you and I agree that everyone and their mothers currently predict the recession next year, right? Um, I'm getting booked right, left and center to talk uh, to uh, corporate managements about what to do about next year's recession. It probably means that the recession is already here, if you ask me. Um, but um, in any case, can equities drop from here if everyone agrees that we are already at the edge of a recession. And a follow-up question to that, Raul, the only thing that I can see bringing equities down in such a scenario would be unemployment rising, retail flows being taken out of fund managers. All fund managers are already negative, right? Um, they are variously positioned, etc. So for them to sell even more, they would simply need to see withdrawals from the funds. What do you make of that discussion? So first, let's go to that passive argument. That's Mike Green's uh, argument, I think it's extremely valid. Um, and knowing how the Fed are and the election cycle and where we are, I think the propensity for the government or the Federal Reserve to accept a rise in unemployment that's larger than, you know, enough to get them go back to cowbell, I, I think it's unacceptable to them. It's, it's unacceptable. Society can't take this kind of shit right now. 
and I think they know it. So I don't think that those passive flows disappear. I do think unemployment picks up. I've got some indicators that say it picks up a lot, but my guess is this recession is actually faster than people expect. Um, so it'll be over with, yes, we'll have a drag, yes, unemployment goes up, and things settle down a bit. The equity market, I mean, I went through this in excruciating detail in GMI, and I went back and looked at everything I could possibly find, and this is the most negative sentiment in the history of markets, pretty much, right? Um, and so the argument is, from every single person, is yes, but earnings. So let's question that narrative. Could they be right? Of course they could be right. There's no certainties, and none of us believe that we know the truth. But if I look at the year-on-year -year rate of change of the S&P or the NASDAQ, they're pretty consistent with the S&P's got the, the um, ISM at 42, and the NASDAQ has it at about 36, 37. Right? So they're pretty much priced in the kind of recession that I'm looking for, which is more like a 1990s-style recession than 2008. I think 1990s actually a pretty good idea of what we're heading into. So if price includes all of the data, the forward-looking data, it's suggesting that the earnings are already priced in. We know that earnings have come down. So what is there that we don't know? That This is what I can't get to terms with. The other thing is, a few people have written about this. I don't know if you guys have. You probably have. Is there is, if you go back and look at earnings in inflation-driven cycles, they don't fall as much. Because there's this difference between real and nominal. Well, we see it in retail sales, for example. So nominal retail sales holds up. And I think that th there is a mechanism with it which that holds up earnings so they're less bad. So my, my view is, look, there's probably a 40% chance the equity market makes that low that everybody expects to... 3,300, 3,200 in the S&P, and a 60% chance. Actually, I'd give it 65-35 that it doesn't because of the dynamics. I mean, you've seen the size of the options trading. It is bananas. You know, the, the, um, the, Reddit, crowd, uh, the Reddit crowd and Robin Hood crowd are now put buyers. Right? You've seen the retail put buying. It is extraordinary. The size of these option expiries are beyond comprehension. My guess is the same massive put buy that's rolling this put spread is the same one that was, did it in 2000 and did it in 2008, which was Norway. I'm guessing that's who it is. I don't know. Um, so that's the, you know, the Norwegian um, Sovereign Wealth Fund. So that everybody is kind of set up the wrong way for this. And, and the issue is, is if this rate of change pivot, which I think is a better way of thinking about it, does cause the markets to squeeze. I mean, Christ, nobody owns this stuff. And that's a real problem. The other thing just to talk about in the equation, I know we haven't got a great deal of time, but in the equation is don't forget the pension system. I've talked about this, you know, ad nauseam. What is the pension system? Well, in Europe, it's relatively safe because it's bonds that run through full duration, right? So the mark to market in pensions in Europe is less bad. The US, it's the 60-40. You've just taken the biggest hit to 60-40 in over 100 years. Now, we saw the st stress in the UK pension system because of its funding and the leverage that's involved to meet its liabilities. But the US has a bigger problem. And I don't think the Federal Reserve, who are all in their late 70s, mid to late 70s, the government, who are in their mid to late 70s, 
The Senate, who are in the middle late 70s, want to see their friends or their own pensions decimated, and they're all going to get statements at the end of the year. So if you're a politician, who... This was Arthur Hayes from BitMEX gave me this one piece of information, which is, who owns whom here? The politicians own the central banks, and we've seen that. Mm -hmm. That lack of independence from central banks is a growing theme as these two people merge with one thing, which is to try and keep GDP growth up enough to play the debt. Um, and we can think of pensions as debts because they're just future liabilities. And we have totally fucked that. Always fascinating, role to hear you cover these broad macro topics. The name of the show is The Macro Trading Floor. So at minute 27, we have to ask you, what's your best risk-reward market opportunity or the biggest mispricing you see, let's say, in macro asset classes with a time horizon of six months? And also, of course, once you elaborate, it would be cool to know uh, why do you think that is so mispriced and where could you be wrong in case your thesis doesn't play out? So I'm going to give you two because okay. different people have different risk tolerances. So I think the simplest macro trade, and I've been wrong on this, so I've been in it. I think you both, goes, both had a stab at it as well, which is the bond market. Um, so when I look at the year-on-year -year rate of change of yields versus the ISM, that relationship has held up for the last 50, 60 years. And occasionally it decouples a bit. 2000, early 2008, end of 2007, 1990 were the two. 1990 was very similar. Again, we had a six, six and a bit percent inflation, uh, um, bond yields decoupled. 1994, we had a bit of that too. So this is the most decoupled it's been from the business cycle in history, regardless of what inflation is, because the business cycle should have some of that. So when I look at inflation expectations, they're relatively benign. If I'm looking at Five-year break-evens are at 267 and one-year break-evens at 281. So they're relatively benign. But the bond yield is at 4%. Now, if I look at the year-on-year -year fair rate of comparison versus the ISM, it's currently pricing the ISM at 73. And it should be down at where the ISM is now, about 50. And that would mean bond yield should be at 1.5%. Now doesn't mean I expect it to go to one and a half percent, but that's the magnitude. So I think that's very interesting. And I think this is the illiquidity in the bond market that has been caused by the Basel III regulations, the hoarding in reverse repo and a bunch of other issues, um, because it's not in inflation expectations. So I think that if we're going to see the rate of change come, plus the declining growth, plus the decline in inflation, then bond yields should be a relatively good trade. Now, can you get it to something really interesting? Well, it starts to become interesting. Something that you mentioned, Alf, is, is terminal rate expectations are about 5%. The Fed are probably going to make it clear. They're probably not going to go much above that. Probably make it clear today. You can buy Fed funds pretty much at the terminal rate. So you kind of get this call option which is interesting because calls are too expensive in fixed income land right now. They're be crazy expensive because as liquidity is blown apart, volatility has gone up. They're both function of each other. And they're both actually highly correlated to the reverse repo. Really fascinating charts that they're all a function of each other. So I kind of like Fed funds or Euro dollars if you want to do it um, because the curve will eventually steepen and that will be the front end coming down. So that's the traditionalist approach. 
Let's go to the non-traditionalist approach. How do you make the most money? Well, I went back to 2018, which was a change in the Fed policy. I mean, you know, QT carried on a while longer, but they stopped hiking. And, you know, so something similar-ish. Again, we're not in totally similar environments, but similar-ish. What did asset prices do? Well, the NASDAQ, uh, the exponential age stocks, these growthy technology stocks are up 24%, 24.5%. The NASDAQ was up, I don't know, 15 18%. Then it was probably bonds were next at about 15%. Then it was probably oil. Then it was S&P. So you kind of got this scope of what performs. And that makes sense, right? These are beta. These are growth. But when you overlay crypto, I mean, Bitcoin did 100%. And Ethereum, I don't know, did 300%. Now, go back to the conversation we had about when you've got an exponential trend of adoption, which is crypto, and the business cycle and liquidity cycle has taken the assets down to the bottom of the trend, your future expected return from this is bananas. So the future expected return, I think, out of Ethereum here is, is by far and away superior to anything else that nothing will come close. So there is a world where you could construct a portfolio of long bonds, long crypto, but they're actually the same bet right now. <laughs> you know, that's the issue here. So you might as well take the long crypto. You can just size it differently. If you want to take a different bet, which I think would play into the, the discussion we had, Alf, is maybe you want to buy something to do with energy or copper. Copper is probably a good one. Right, because copper is discounted by the business cycle, unlike oil, which is not as discounted. We know there's a shortage to create EV. We know that Europe's going to massively force and accelerate this process. So in which case, copper is an issue at some point in the next business cycle, not now. Um, so maybe you can have a barbell, which would be long copper or long a copper, one of the big copper miners, you know, that kind of stuff, like Rio's or whoever, and, um, and long Ethereum. Suddenly, a dog started barking in the background. That was because you went over time, Raul. So, <laughs> but um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the only thing that scares me a little bit is that I have to talk about the long TLT trade probably again in the outro of this program. I'd rather chop my leg off than oh, no. suggesting buying TLT right now. And that's quite telling in itself, I guess. Raul, thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you guys. There was a lot for people to digest there. Well, Raul, actually one last point from my end before we let you go is uh, I know that probably people by now know where to find you, but given that your macro elaboration, your trade ideas today, if people want to find more about Raul, where can they do that? Look, I think yeah, everyone knows where to find me generally, but I do have a new newsletter that is um, excerpts from GMI, mm -hmm. and I think it's, it, there's some really interesting stuff in that for people, and it's free. So if you just go to my Twitter handle... Or search me on Substack. If you go to my Twitter handle profile, you'll see it there. If not, go to Substack. And it'll just give you some guidance into my thinking. It's only a small bit because um, you guys have seen how big GMI is. It's kind of ludicrous. Uh, but this is a small bit of my thinking, and I hope it helps people. At least I've stopped printing it. <laughs> Let me put it like that, Raul. <laughs> You've just taken down half the Swedish pine forests. Thanks, Raul, for being here with us. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks. 
So guys, we're back for the outro part of the macro trading floor. The guest of the day was Raul Pal, and uh, we don't need to explain, I guess, who Raul is. Most of you guys will know. And Raul wants effectively on the 2nd of November 2022 to put up a trade that is um, a long bond trade and at the same time also a long Ethereum trade as let's say a high beta expression, very high beta expression of the same pattern, Andreas, we can say. So let me ask you two questions. A, what do you make of the overarching macro trends that Raul discussed in the first 10 minutes of, of his intervention? And then what do you make of the cyclical discussion that he had on macro and therefore his trade ideas? Well, well let's start with um, the more long-term discussion on productivity and the need for negative real rates uh, for as long as we can see, basically, as sort of a way to move out of the current um, abyss. And I, I think he's, he's basically spot on that negative real rates will prove to be the most sort of politically palatable way uh, to indirectly grow ourselves out of the current debt load. Um, check mark in front of that thesis. What, what I struggle a bit to sort of convince myself uh, about right now is the healthiness of having long-term <laughs> negative real rates, um, in particular given what we saw in 2020 and 2021 when it comes to asset pricing uh, in various bizarre corners of <laughs> asset markets um, due to record low real interest rates. Uh, I, I wrote an article earlier this week on my Substack called Three Reasons Why Everyone, Zuckerberg, Me and Their Dogs Turn Into Idiots When Rates Are Zero. Uh, and I sincerely mean it uh, based on anecdotal evidence from my uh, experience in, um, in banking, but also on the uh, asset management side of things. As soon as you um, enter a zero in a discount cash flow model, model um, basically forever in the model, you can convince yourself of everything. Uh, I mean, uh, let's fly to Mars in 2099 and um, charge people for it. That seems like a great idea if you have no discount rate. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and I think it, it, it's, this is exactly what's going on in tech right now. Some of the big tech players, um, Facebook slash Meta being probably uh, the most obvious one to mention, They've started investing in stuff with no sort of real cash flow generation over, say, the next 5, 10, 15 years. The metaverse being a great example of that. I'm not sure whether the metaverse will turn into a great thing or not, but what I'm certain about is that we will only be sure that it's a good thing once it has sort of uh, pulled through a litmus test of positive discounting rates. Uh, and that's essentially the test that it's not passing right now. Uh, Meta is pissing away cash flow on the metaverse. Um, and a very very great cash flow generating comp company suddenly betting on something, well, kind of distant. I right? think you're looking at this the wrong way, Andreas. Because metaverse is make, uh, the meta is making a lot of money in the metaverse. It's just that you can't see it. It's metaverse money. No, just kidding. But I mean, I, I, it's right when it comes to the assessment. Anything that is discounted with negative uh, real rates or a zero nominal interest rate for that sake seems like a good long-term investment when you discount that. And if cash flows far in the future discounted at zero interest rates, everything looks good or almost everything looks good. I mean, the hard goal for your investment return is very low. So anything looks like a good idea. Now, um, 
I agree, though, with Raul's assessment that demographics and productivity are the ways to drive potential real-term growth, uh, or, uh, sorry, real GDP growth, and both of them are on a declining trend, and therefore we have used credit as a leverage mechanism to overlay cyclical growth and purchase and basically spending power uh, on top of, uh, of these very declining long-term secular uh, growth trends. And that leads effectively to equilibrium real rates that are lower and lower at every iteration because the system gets more clogged and clogged with unproductive debt. So it all squares the thesis that makes a lot of sense and empirically correct as well. Now let's translate that into his trade idea for when it comes to the short-term macro cycle. And there Raul has been pretty vocal, let's say, on a Federal Reserve that is will be required to be attentive to financial risks sooner rather than later. And that summed up with a strong cyclical economic slowdown. At some point, Raul talked about negative inflation prints as the payback, like in the 50s, basically, as the payback for this very strong inflation pickup, mathematically speaking, because of base effects and year-on-year -year calculations and the economic slowdown and the weakening in the labor market. He talked about a temporary dip in negative territory for inflation prints. And therefore, such a strong disinflationary impulse would lead him to be uh, long bonds and then as an expression, high beta expression, also long uh, Ethereum or crypto in general. So that's a summary, Andres, and my take is the following. Uh, the disinflationary uh, nominal growth trend ahead of us, I think it's basically undeniable when you look at forward-looking indicators, both of real growth and of inflation. It's going to take a while longer probably for inflation to follow through, but ultimately we will get that disinflationary growth trend. Now, I learned uh, in macro investing that you should check out what's priced in markets as well in analyst consensus. So, inflation expectation going ahead, spot inflation 8%, one year, one year forward, 3%. So, it's a 5% drop in 12 to 18 months. That's relatively sharp as a drop. Can you beat it? Yeah, sure you can, but you need to know that's the hurdle. The second is real growth. So unfortunately, as my friend Mr. Blonde Macro says, there is no real GDP future that one can trade, uh, but you need to go for proxies. So earnings growth is expected to grow at 6.5% nominal uh, in a year from now. And, but if you look at unemployment rate uh, projections or real GDP projections, analyst consensus for US real GDP growth is 0.5%. And analyst consensus for non-farm payroll median monthly growth next year is 30,000 jobs. 30,000 only, Andreas. So we are expecting a real growth slowdown. We are expecting an inflation slowdown. It's all about the magnitude and the timing of this slowdown. So you not only need to get the direction right, but the magnitude. What's your take? Well, uh, you're spot on in terms of assessing um, the future pricing uh, and how to gauge Raul's thesis versus that. Um, what strikes me the most still is that who cares about the talking heads if unemployment starts rising and regular people will have to withdraw funds from fund managers as a consequence of it? I think that's a very practical way of understanding why a recession could lead to another sell-off in equities, even though you and I, Raul, more or less everyone with a, a package of forward-looking models can see the inflation slowing down and can see the recession coming. Uh, I mean, uh, you don't, it, it's not rocket science by now. Uh, it's, it's quite likely, right? Uh, so I guess it's the behavior that we need to be on top of from now, uh, from market participants, in particular retail participants. Uh, and I still don't buy the idea that um, the 
put action from uh, from the retail crowd is a good gauge of the average retail guy uh, because I mean of course there's a corner of the market um, buying Tesla calls and uh, <laughs> triple Q, Q uh, puts uh, at the extremes but I mean it's still very much a niche um, the average retail guy is invested by fund managers um, so that's that's the key thing to watch uh, and uh, I'm still fairly clear in my stance I'm short Nasdaq um, simply due to the fact that uh, I dislike tech stocks as a consequence of them spending too much cash flow on things not generating cash flows. Cash flow is king right now due to the discount rate, uh, which is healthy due, due to the uh, things that we discussed with Pro. So very good comments, Andreas. There are two things that I would like to add um, on the bond side. I am not overly long bond yet. Uh, I have bought TLT, been wrong in June, uh, not added since then. The, there is a thing to be said, though, that if you look at the distribution of nominal yields ahead, one might make the argument that they are not really well-priced on the left tail, so on the dropping yields, the probability of Fed funds being below 2.5% is priced the same way as the probability of Fed funds being at 7% in a year from now. And honestly, I think the left tail should be priced a bit fatter than the right tail, given the set yes. of macroeconomic circumstances. Now, that's a relative value trade. Does it mean you can get long bonds yet? No, but it suggests that people are getting relatively reluctant to assign higher probabilities of a Fed cutting cycle ahead. There's a strong convex Fed cutting cycle ahead, which encourages me to look more curiously at, at the bond allocation going forward. And the other is on the equity side. A Fed pivot in 2001, 150 basis point cuts as the labor market was weakening and earnings were weakening, led equities to drop another 10% and the dollar to appreciate another 6%. A Fed pivot late in the cycle because things are getting really bad is not necessarily bullish for risk assets. So the high beta expression I really don't like. I think it's a mechanical body memory kind of thing that Fed pivots are bullish risk assets. I think the environment this time is a bit different than it was in the past, and I would urge a bit more caution from that perspective. And last word is on the skew, because you talked about retail um, buying puts. And if you look at the skew in, in three months or six months or one month, SMPs, basically the slope of the implied volatility across strikes, actually upside call is much more expensive in vol terms than downside puts nowadays, which tends to speak to people trying to buy upside towards year-end to maybe try and get an allocation towards a year-end rally rather than getting um, more excited about, about buying puts. Mm. I do not see that in the option market. I can't see that, uh, that narrative at play there. So we agree there, Andreas. I, I, uh, let me add one thing as the final conclusion uh, of this week's show. Uh, I perfectly share Raul's view of the world when it comes to politicians not accepting too large of a drawdown. But for the first time in 20 years, central banks actually have political tailwinds to provide a middle finger to indebted um, so-called financial experts always counting on that put as soon as the market drops. And I actually think that central banks would like to utilize that window of opportunity. So let me add that as a warning here. For the first time in a decade or more, central banks have a window of opportunity to provide a middle finger to all the over-levered people. You heard Mr. Steno, ladies and gentlemen. And on this note, 
I can say that uh, the Macro Trading Floor episode of the week is over and um, this is a goodbye and a thank you from Alf here. And goodbye from Andreas Dino. See you next Sunday. Yeah.